We're continuing on in our study of Hebrews today, and so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be in verses 26 to 31. Pray with me, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name, to hear from you through your word, to worship you in response to the gospel. Lord, we uh, do continue to lift up uh, Bob's family, and particularly Lois. Continue to pray for our country. But Lord, we turn now to your word and we confess, Father, that we need this moment. We need a moment where we hear from you. Hear from you in ways that are are different than the voices maybe that we seek on the inside. When we look to the inside, we can so easily self-deceive ourselves. And then when we look to the world around us, That world can deceive us as well. And so, Lord, we need your word. Lord, thank you that you have communicated to us, that even in this passage, you have spoken plainly and clearly to us. May we really see the truth of this passage. May we really hear it. May we, Father, uh, really believe it and even cherish it and and walk out it. Lord, I pray that we would do examining work today, that we would examine our hearts and and line our lives up with your word. Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word. I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. How educated you are, wealthy you are, or how maybe psychologized we become, sin is still our problem. Sin is still the, the base problem, the, the rooted problem of humanity. Uh, Ron and Abby were well off. They had built a successful business. And, and in fact, in building that business, not only did they build a successful business, but they learned how to build successful businesses. <laughs> and so they did. And they were, they were well off. They were, they were wealthy. Ron and Abby were also well educated. Both had bachelor's degrees. Ron had a master's degree, and Abby was finishing uh, her master's degree. In fact, Ron had recently been asked to give a lecture at his uh, college's, um, uh, at his university's business college. Ron and Abby were also um, uh, were psychologized in the sense that, that they knew kind of how to self-diagnose each other. They had grabbed a copy of the DSM-5, and they learned how to navigate that, and, and they you know, highlighted different things in each other's lives. They had taken different personality tests, and they kind of you know, knew the, the verbiage of all of that and how to you know, categorize each other based upon their personalities. They, they'd gotten really into mindfulness, and mindfulness had been this helpful tool for them uh, to be successful in business and how it helped them succeed academically. And so but Ron and Abby were also on the verge of divorce, and they believed that they had a communication problem. They, they believed that if they could just go sit down with a counselor and learn how to say the right things at the right time, maybe with the right tone, and use the right words, then all of it would be like this puzzle that would just unlock, and, and they could have this happy marriage. And so they were sitting in this counseling office okay, better. However, the problem wasn't skill, it was will. It wasn't just, okay, let's find the right word or say it the right way. They had this deeper heart problem. They had a sin problem. They had going on at a deeper level that was really their problem. Again, it doesn't matter how educated or wealthy or psychologized you become. Our problems 
always have their root in our hearts. We always, it's always a sin problem at, at some level. Today we uh, have made this shift in the book of Hebrews to the practical portion of the book. We talked about this last week. That Last week there's this real turn in the book where, where before we've been in all this kind of high speculative theoretical theology and more specifically Christology. We've kind of waded out into the deep waters of who Jesus is. And in fact, many of these passages, frankly, I think are hard to follow. I mean, this is just deep, rich, profound theology that we've been wading through. And now there's this, this intentional turn. There's this turn from the, the speculative and the theoretical to the practical. There's a turn to application, and that's where we are today. Now, before you get too excited about that, and, and I think that should be the end of preaching and the end of all these books, is, okay, what does this mean for us today? And, and that's a, a good thing and a great thing. But if you're really excited about that, also know that that means there's the tone of this book is going to change a little bit. It's going to be more direct. There's a, a plainness about what today, but there's certainly a directness about it. You see, we all have this heart problem. In Hebrews 10, 26-31, it's going to call us to fear God's judgment when we're tempted to sin. Now, on this passage, I want to ask two questions. The first one is, what is deliberate sin in verse 26? And then I want us to ask, what is the result of deliberate sin? Follow along as I read Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Again, in this application portion of the book, last week we saw three or, or four imperatives, depending on how you're counting it. But there were these plain imperatives, these, the, these plain things that you're supposed to do. Draw near, stir up, uh, hold fast. All of these are these plain, clear imperatives. Go do this. If you believe in the blood of Christ as a covering for your sin, then go do these things. Draw near, hold fast, stir up. This is a little bit different. This is application, but it's, but it's not really an imperative. It's really more of a warning. There's a warning here that if we don't live that way, if we don't believe this, then something is going to happen. It's a warning against willful or deliberate sin. However, I want to link back to that passage to, to highlight those imperatives. Based upon Jesus' blood, if you look back up at, the, up at that section, 19 uh, to 25, notice those imperatives. If you really believe that Jesus' blood covered your sin, then he tells you very plainly to stir up, hold fast, and draw near. And he also says, don't neglect meeting together. So all of those things are very plain and clear teachings of the Bible. If you claim to be a Christian, then you're supposed to live this way. Now, all of that, uh, I think now this is then a reference back to those imperatives. So he's given a warning here, given a warning based upon those imperatives. But also there's something broader going on here. In addition to warning us to live that way, I think there's a warning against falling away. There's a warning against apostasy. Now, if, if you remember, that's the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is this call to not fall away. And the reason we're not supposed to fall away is because Jesus is better. So the solution to the temptation to fall away is remember that Jesus is better. And what that means is, is whatever is tempting you to fall away, Jesus is better than whatever is tempting you. Jesus is always better. That's why we're not supposed to fall away. So this, this passage fits within that broader charge of if you're falling away, if you're abandoning the faith, he's giving you this warning. But, but also notice how the last passage ended. 
In verse 25, he talks about we're, we're to draw near, we're to hold fast, we're to stir up because the day of judgment is coming, verse 25. Now, now that becomes like a launching point here into this next section. But, but the, the ground for all of that is, is that we're supposed to do those things because the day of judgment is coming. Time is running out. The time of your life is running out. And so do these things. Now, that's then the connection here to begin speaking to deliberate or willful sins. But what is deliberate sin? Deliberate sin is conscious or or willful sin. There's a a brazenness about it because it's deliberate. You, You know you shouldn't do it, but you do it anyway. Now, we're going to kind of maybe categorize sin, and maybe this is helpful, maybe it isn't. But, but, you know, willful sin is different than sometimes sin that just is born straight from almost like this unconscious depravity. So, for example, if uh, maybe you're a young person, and maybe you just really love your sport or your extracurricular activity to the degree that it becomes like idolatrous in your life. Now, I'm not picking on anybody. That was me as a 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old kid. I I loved football. I wasn't very good at football, but I loved football. And it it was just kind of my thing. And I, you know, I was really down when I did bad at it, which was kind of regular. Uh, But, and then I felt great when I was doing well at it. I, I ate certain things because how it affected football, like my identity was all wrapped it was kind of this idolatrous thing for me, okay? And so sometimes our sins are the root of these kind of deep depravity. Sometimes sin is really the product of maybe not, uh, it is the product of depravity, but maybe more specifically, it's the product of ignorance. So take for example, you, he's the dirty joke guy, okay? And then he gets converted. And then he's still the dirty joke guy, Okay. And then say a, a guy, you know, his friends come around him and say, hey, man, th- that's, th- that's not appropriate. Like, that's, that's not how Christians are supposed to talk. Like, like, that's not how Christians are supposed to live. And the guy goes, um, yeah, okay, I, I didn't even, I'm just, this is just how I live my life. This is how I talk. Yeah, I, I, didn't even, I didn't even think of it in the, in the context of the gospel. And then he repents and tries to live a different way. Maybe, maybe his sin is out of ignorance. This type of sin that he's talking about is is different. And in some ways, it's, it's just more brazen. It's, it's deliberate sin. It's willful sin. It's when you know something is wrong, but you do it anyway. Or it's you know something is wrong, and then you continue or you keep doing it. For example, maybe you're the guy that you, you, you know Hebrews 10. You know what uh, those, those verses 24 and 25 talk about. You know that as a Christian, you're supposed to gather regularly together. And like we talked about last week, I don't have some sort of tight formula. That means 42 out of the 52 weeks. I, I don't know how many that means. Okay, all I know is it means you should be here more than you're not. That's the best I can do on what it means to gather regularly, okay? But maybe you're the Christian and you know that. But in reality, you, this is like your one day to sleep late, You'd rather be playing golf or you'd rather be on the lake. And so you, well, I can meet Jesus on the, on the lake just as well. as you're, you're that guy, okay? Like, that goes against the clear teaching. of It's clear here that you are to gather together. And the reason you're to gather together is because you're supposed to stir one another up to love and good works. Well, maybe you don't want to know anybody because you don't want them to stir you up or challenge you. And you certainly don't have a, a ministry heart to stir someone else up. Like, if you don't know anybody, then you can't fulfill those scriptures. Maybe you're that guy, and, and you just refuse to come be part of God's, uh, God's church. 
So that's what it's talking about. It's talking about this willful sin. He knows it's wrong, but he doesn't really care. It's willful, it's deliberate, it's done with eyes open. Also, it says that these actions are willfully done, quote, after receiving the knowledge of truth. So what this is talking about, I, I think this is in reference to those particular sins and those particular imperatives that were talked about in the previous section. That those, that's the knowledge of truth that you've received to draw near, to hold fast, to stir up. And if someone knows those things and then refuses to do them, that's what this is talking about. But again, I also think it's talking about, so it is talking about like a rejection of God's ways. But again, in a broader sense, this uh, rejection of having received the knowledge of truth and then rejecting it, I think it's also talking about like the gospel as a whole. So not only is it talking about the specifics of God's ways and how to follow him, but it's also this this broader thing, this this rejection of, of theological gospel truth. It's these, these truths that, okay, there's only one way to heaven. That what He does on the cross is to atone for your sin, but then you reject that. So it's talking about those things as well. It's talking about rejecting God's ways, but it's also talking about rejecting Him. Now, the result of that willful rejection, that deliberate sin, is that there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, friends, if you're not picking this up, this is where this passage gets really terrifying really quick. This is like one of the classic Hebrew warning passages. There's some passages in Hebrews that should keep you up at night, and this is one of them. He's saying that, listen, if you're in that camp, if you're in that camp where maybe you have like functionally rejected the gospel, like you've heard these teachings of what you're supposed to do, and then you just totally reject it. Or you're the guy that like, not, not just functionally, but like theologically, you reject all of this. He's saying here that there remains a sacrifice for sin. L- let me say it a little more plain. He's saying that you're not a Christian. He's saying that Jesus don't cover you. That's a sign that you're not a Christian. He's saying that if someone is there, then Jesus' sacrifice is not covering your sins. Isn't that a terrifying warning? Isn't that terrifying to hear those words? Maybe you've thrown a stick in a fire. Maybe you've prayed a prayer. But, but there's, there, there's nothing in your life that, that is consistent with, with what you say you believe. He's saying here, as in he, the lowercase a author of this book, is questioning if you're really a Christian. And we understand this to be Scripture. So there's also a capital A author, God Himself, who is questioning if you're really a Christian. Friends, we're a, a church that cherishes the grace of God. Like even on the wall out there, we have broken people loving broken people. That, that, that's based on Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, where we really value God's grace. You're not saved by your own good works, like reaching high enough to God or being holy enough to earn a place in His presence. It's about God reaching down graciously to you, saving you out of your sin. We really value that, and we really try to live by that. And listen, if you really believe in grace, that then leads to another. And if you, if you think you didn't earn it, it's by God's grace then you understand that you can't out His grace, right? And so that means you can't lose your salvation. And listen, we really cherish that, don't we? And we, we preach that regularly around here. Now, now, let me just say, 
all of that, that, that salvation by grace that you can't lose, that is not meant to be a teaching where you can then go on living however you want to live. This passage is very clear on that. Grace is not meant to lead to fleshly sinfulness. If that's what you're doing in your mind with grace, well, hey, he's just going to forgive me, so I'm going to go on and do, live however I want. Friend, you've totally misunderstood grace. You've totally misunderstood the gospel. Maybe let me say it this way. If the gospel has not changed you, then the gospel has not changed you. Are you with me? If it hasn't changed you, then it hasn't changed you, is what he's getting at here. Now, clearly, we can't get legalistic on any of this. But, but, but if your life does not reflect faithfulness, not perfection, but if it doesn't reflect faithfulness, then he's questioning if you're really saved, willfully rejecting the truth of the gospel. It cuts you off from the only means of salvation. So what's deliberate sin again? It's the willful, theological, or functional rejection of the truth. And if someone is marked by that, if someone's life is marked by deliberate sin, then the Bible judges that they're not really a Christian, which means the effects of Jesus' sacrificial atonement do not apply to them. I think this is clear, and I think this is one of the more terrifying passages in the Bible. Well, it gets worse. Hang with me. What's the result of deliberate sin? Look at verse 27. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled under the foot of the Son of God? who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The result of deliberate theological and functional rejection of the gospel is judgment. It's judgment. He's promising judgment here. And more specifically, verse 27, it's a fury of fire. Friends, that fire is so furious that it consumes its adversaries. This judgment is terrifying. This judgment is, is fearful. It's meant to cause fear in your life. It's meant to strike fear in people who are living this way. We're to expect fearful judgment if we reject the clear teachings of Scripture. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, I thought we're not supposed to be fearful. That, like, I, I thought we're not supposed to live this life of fear. And, and, and to be specific here, the, the Greek term here for fear means that you're so frightened, that you're so filled with dread, that like you withdraw, you, you flee back. Like it, it, it changes, you go in a whole different direction. You're like, whoa, I, I'm scared of that, so I'm going to go this way. Is that how we're supposed to live? Are we supposed to live fearful lives? Well, let me give you three verses. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Psalm 46.1-2 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And my favorite, John 14.27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
neither let them be afraid. One of the themes in those three verses is, is, is not just fear not, but the ground for that. We're to fear not because of the presence of God. God is with us. We're supposed to fear not. But Hebrews 10 is saying, He ain't with you. His covering is not covering you. And so if that ground is taken away, then what is left should be fear. This gets to maybe the virtues of fear. Like there's a good thing about being fearful in this way. Let me give you three other verses. Proverbs 1a, which I think is probably like the theme of the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Psalm 33.8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Therefore, we should have a, a healthy view of fear. We, we should have healthy fears in our lives. For example, you should be uh, fearful of trains when you're crossing a train. Healthy fear of addictive, mind-altering drugs. You, you, you should have a fear of God. You should fear His judgment. But again, this fear draws you away from some things and towards other things. So if you fear the opinions of a professor or popular opinion or of a girlfriend more than you fear the Lord, well, that's going to send you down one path, right? But, but if you fear the Lord and you fear His fiery judgment more than you fear the opinions of this world, well, that's going to send you in a, in a whole different direction, right? And, and listen, that fear, that, that questioning of that fear and wrestling with that fear and fearing the Lord more, that actually leads to freedom, doesn't it? Because if I can fear the Lord more than the opinions of the world, then I have the freedom not to be crushed by the world. I have the freedom to speak truth and love to the world. I have the freedom to confidently walk in faithfulness even though the world is going a different way. And, and I want to be clear about the nature of this judgment that he's talking about. This judgment, he says, is a fury of fire. Friends, this is eternal damnation is what he's talking about. He's talking about the fires of hell, and the warning is very real here. He, he's talking about this eternal separation from God. If you reject the theological truths of the gospel, if, if you reject the practical truth of the Bible that he's calling you to, he's saying that you should fear eternal damnation if that's how you're living your life. If you reject all of this, if you reject him, if you reject his ways, then he's promising a fury of fire. If anyone is rejecting all this, you should, be, you should hear the legitimate warning of this passage. This is a real warning to Christ, but then rejects Him and rejects His ways. He then qualifies all this. He qualifies this warning by then making a comparison between the Old and the New Covenant. He's saying, listen, uh, the, the Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant, you could face capital punishment, Okay? But, but the new covenant, we've been saying this whole time, uh, the, the new with Jesus, it's better. In other words, it's greater. So if that's true, if the new is greater, and if the rejection of the old led to a capital punishment, then if you reject the new, man, if you trample, as he says, if you trample on the grace of God, on his, on his atoning work for you, isn't the punishment going to be greater? Shouldn't that be the logic of where this goes? You see, if someone tramples and disdains and has contempt for the grace of God, won't their judgment be greater? That's his argument that he's making here. Listen, he further qualifies this warning by going to Deuteronomy 32. And 
typically cited kind of a, as, as one side of truth, okay? So he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now this is talking about God is going to set things right. So when we face injustice, we can hope in the future because vengeance is mine. So this is kind of like turning the other cheek, right? Like you can turn the other cheek because vengeance is mine. There's going to be a day where God sets everything right so you can turn the other cheek and, and, and God's going to make everything good and everything right. You have the freedom to, to, to take all that in this life because he's going, to be, he's going to make it right someday. That's not the scenario he's talking about here. He's quoting that same verse, but here's what he's saying. What if you're the one who strikes the person? What if you're the one who slaps the person on the cheek? What if you're the one who is sinning? That verse has a different weight to it then. Vengeance is mine. Do you see it? Listen, that's one thing if you're getting struck on the cheek. Vengeance is mine. What a hopeful. But if you're the one striking the person, vengeance is mine. Becomes a very terrifying verse, doesn't it? I think the conclusion of the passage, it ends It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, his hands atone. Amen? His hands comfort. His hands preserve us and carry us. His hands also discipline. And His hands punish those who reject Him. Now, you might claim Christ to all those around you, and they might politely go along with it, but Hebrews 10 is saying that God knows the truth. Do you fear Him enough to follow Him? Hebrews 10, 26-31, it's one of these passages that calls, calls us to examine ourselves. This is, this is like a, a Christian discipline. This is a means of grace that God gives us. We have the ability to like diagnose ourselves and examine ourselves. We can, we can back up and look at our lives and say, okay, how am I doing here? Am, am I really faithfully following this? Like, like we can examine ourselves, and that's what this is calling us to do. This is no different than communion. Like communion is this moment where we're to remember the gospel, right? But in remembering it, we're supposed to examine ourselves. Have we really been transformed by the to the degree that we can take this in a worthy manner? Let me read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 30. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. When we take communion, we're, we're to pause and examine ourselves. We, we take communion every week after the time of preaching. Uh, we have this moment, and we're supposed to ask genuine questions of ourselves. Now, listen, I'm not talking about self-absorption, okay? Some people can become so self-absorbed they're even paralyzed by some of this. I'm, I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about doing an honest self-examination and, and really asking some genuine questions of yourself. Do, do you have deliberate sin in your life? I think that's what this, this passage is asking you today. He, Hebrews 10, it calls us to draw near, to hold fast, to stir up one another to good works, to not neglect me, meeting together. Are you living according to God's word in those areas? Does that mark your life? Do you draw near when you sin or suffer? Or do you run away? 
Do, do you hold fast in the face of criticism or in the face of temptation? Do you help others in our church love better? Do you help others in our church walk more faithfully and carry out those good works? Are, are you regularly here? Again, do you have deliberate sin in your life? Do you claim to be a Christian, yet, yet really deny the plain teachings of the gospel? Do you really believe that there is a God and that He sent His one-of-a-kind Son to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life in order to become the atoning sacrifice for your sins, and then die as your substitute, and then rise victoriously in your place? Do you believe all that to the degree that you allow it to transform the entirety of your life? Examine yourself. Today when we begin singing, if you've examined yourself, and you have some real questions about where you are, Friends, every week we have pastors and elders at the back, and, and they just want to visit with you. They want to pray with you. They can uh, slip outside and, and meet somewhere privately with you. But listen, as you examine yourself, if you look at yourself and say, I don't really know. I, I think I believe this, but, but I'm not living this way. Or you know what? If I'm real honest, I mean, I'm, I'm saying one thing, but I'm, I'm believing something else on the inside. If that's you, we want to talk with you, and we want to pray with you. Emma didn't really care about church. She believed in God, and her parents had her there every Sunday. She went to youth group, and, and she liked a lot of things about youth group. She had friends there that she loved and knew that they loved her. They would, she enjoyed all the fun stuff. Uh, Emma was a really in, insightful uh, teenager, and she, she really listened to the world around her. She also listened to the teachings of her church and listened to the news. She kind of just soaked it all in and it was hard for her because she really wondered what was really true. Like she would hear something from the world or something from a headline, and she would, well, I don't, by all of them, but man, I, I really see this. I mean, yeah, I, that can be true. And she would hear something maybe from her small group leader, and I don't know about all that, but yeah, this, this part is true. And so she, she just really had trouble putting it all together, and she saw these competing truths, and she didn't really know what to believe. If anybody asked her, Emma would say, yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. However, when she went off to college, she she really never uh, really plugged into a church. She kind of gave a half-hearted effort to get her mom off her back, but she never really plugged in. I mean, she, she found some good friends, uh, some girls in her dorm, and that's kind of who she ran with through college. She would go uh, to church when she went home, but, but uh, Emma, as she graduated, she, she didn't really date much in college, but um, at her first job, there was a really nice uh, young man there, and uh, they had a lot of fun together. He also said he was a Christian. He also never really went to church, but they ended up getting married. And during that first year of her marriage, she had two kind of foundation rattling things happen to her. Number one, uh, her father suddenly died. And he had been this consistent source of, of just love and support to her. She was a, a, just a true daddy's girl, um, as all daughters should be, in my opinion. Um, second, she, the second thing that happened to her is uh, she, she caught her husband having inappropriate communications with an ex-girlfriend through social media and, and text. She felt really betrayed. She, uh, she didn't uh, trust her husband anymore. And in the pain of all that, she really went to her knees. And uh, she ended up doing kind of just an honest examination of her heart and what does she really believe and how does she really want to live her life. She uh, decided to go see a biblical counselor at her parents' church, and, and that counselor did a great job of really challenging Emma on what she really believed. She, she helped Emma make the connection that all these years of not growing spiritually, 
<laughs> there was a connection to that, to how she was uh, really struggling to navigate these, uh, these two trials in her life. And Emma wasn't sure if she was really converted, and she asked her counselor, how do you know for sure? And, and they just prayed in that counseling office together, and, and she was genuinely converted. From that point on, there, there was real consistent spiritual growth in her life. And listen, I'm not going to tell you that you know, her grief over her father's death just immediately went away. I mean, that, there was a journey to that. And even in her marriage, it wasn't just reconciled immediately and overnight. She, she had to learn to forgive, and she had to really develop the strength to kind of step into these hard conversations and even kind of develop a plan where they could rebuild trust together. But she also found joy in spite of her circumstances. Friends, Hebrews 10, 26-31, it's a warning. It's a warning to those who claim Christ but don't really follow His ways and don't really believe in Him. It's a warning. It's a warning telling us that that, that type of apathetic faith is going to be met with judgment. Remember the old story of Aslan? Aslan was a, a lion that, that would protect you. There was a tenderness about him. The girls would climb on him and play on him. But, but he was a, a lion that was ferocious as well. That lion could devour you as well. There, there was a fear that people had of that lion. Jesus is the same way. A day of judgment is coming for us all. The fires of hell are real. And let me tell you, as Jesus said, that place is filled with people who said, Lord, Lord. And in Matthew 7, Jesus responds to those people, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you know him? Are you following him? Are you drawing near and holding fast and stirring up and showing up? Does your life match your words? Friends, fear His judgment. And fear His judgment to the degree of examining your life today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this passage and its directness, its plainness, the weight of it. We thank You for the truth of it. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would take a moment today and just examine our hearts and our lives. If our hearts and our lives don't line up with your gospel, Lord, I pray that we would repent and believe today. Maybe for some of us, it's we are tr- truly converted, but we need to make some real changes. Maybe for others of us, we, we tell people that we're a Christian when, you know, when we think it'll gain us something with someone. But in reality, we really don't believe. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are in that category, I pray that they would not walk out of this room until they're genuinely converted, that today would be the day that they truly believe. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.